Guys, we've, we've started a series this summer that we've entitled Torn Veil. And the idea is uh, when Jesus died on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, uh, a number of things happened. Uh, a number of things were said. One of the things, perhaps one of the most climactic things to take place just prior to Jesus breathing his last breath, it said that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. This um, very real and obviously symbolic barrier that existed to separate creator from creation, holy God from sinful people was torn down. The barrier was removed. The implications of that are vast and profound. The thing that separated us from the, our very source of life, we've now been given free access to, the veil has been torn down and Jesus now invites us to cross over and to experience new life, uh, resurrection life, if you will, because after dying, he was buried, and then three days later, he came back to life, conquering sin, conquering death, and offering a new kind of life, um, a spirit-empowered life, a life like Jesus' life. He's made it freely available to all of us. So we've, we've been looking at this central idea of Christianity, Jesus' work on the cross, and applying it to everyday categories of our lives. We've covered, um, help me if I'm forgetting any, we've only done a few, stress, uh, work, and family so far. Just easy, simple stuff. Today, we're going to look at the cross and marriage. Um, we're going to look at three aspects of marriage, or we're going to look at marriage from three angles. Marriage for married people, naturally. Marriage for single people who perhaps are aspiring to be married, or simply don't want to be married, but obviously want to be uh, educated and have healthy, positive attitudes about marriage. And thirdly, uh, marriage for divorced people, so people who, who've been around the block more than once and uh, marriage is perhaps a very sensitive subject for you. But we're going to look at the cross and marriage for married people, single people, and divorced. And we're going to pray before we go any further, because we are about to step into deep, deep water. Father, help us. Holy Spirit, won't you come and be our teacher this morning? Pray that you would open up our hearts, cause us to be receptive to your word. I pray that we, as we look at the subject of marriage, um, you would cause us to, to have a greater revelation of your vision for marriage however it might affect our lives, past, present, or future. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys ready? All right, let's go. <laughs> I can feel the nervousness in the room. I'm actually slightly nervous, I'm not gonna lie. 
This is, this is, a, this is an exciting and potentially very touchy subject. So we're going to just go right to it. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, I just, I want to appeal to you right up front. We're going to read some things now, and it's going to, for some of you, it just, it may not even be a big deal, so I don't want to just like freak you all out, but for some of you, it may feel like we're, we're stepping into a theological minefield, and I'm purposely not going to skip over bits that I would be otherwise very tempted to skip over, but we're going to read through a large chunk of Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to let God's word speak for itself. We're not going to look at every angle, every issue, every controversy. We're not going to answer every question. We're going to zoom in on some specific things that I believe are really at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is saying, is wanting to emphasize in his letter to the Ephesians. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to go 1 through 32. We will actually skip a chunk, but... That's okay. Starting in verse 1. Now, hold on. This is very, very important here that we're thinking context. Okay, there's a reason why I'm including a massive 32 verses. The context for what we're about to get into is so crucial. If you skip the context, you might just end up feeling a bit confused, slightly offended, um, so let's really, let's, let's, let's see if we can get the context here. Okay, here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We're talking about acting like our father, being kids who look up to dad and think to ourselves, I just want to be just like you, that everything about you I love and want to emulate. And so Paul exhorts the believers, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now from there he goes on to talk about light and darkness. He talks specifically about sexual immorality and he says just don't do it. If you want to imitate God, if you want to walk in love, stay away from darkness and don't be sexually immoral. It doesn't reflect the heart of God. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There is a lot of difficult, hard, broken things that we face in our everyday lives. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to list uh, several verbs describing what we're supposed to do in being filled with the Spirit. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, comma, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We just did that. Singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. Check. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Additionally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So the context is we're talking about being imitators of God as beloved children. We're walking in love as Christ and for Christ. So as human beings, if we're going to act like God, we look at Jesus, our human example of what it looks like to be imitators of our Father on planet Earth. Um, Now, before we continue on, let me just say this. Paul is speaking to, he says, submitting to one another, and then he goes on to look at several or three specific categories of the family unit. He's speaking to a patriarchal and largely hierarchical society. Okay, so the ancient Near East, Israel, um, it is a patriarchal patriarchal society. So when he starts talking about wives submitting to your husbands, there is nothing whatsoever controversial about that in the first century. Now, to be fair, this is where we're into landmine territory. To be fair, one could make the argument that Paul is now proceeding to prescribe um, a sort of complementarian view of the family structure Uh, as Christians, as the family of God. One could also simply note that, now actually, he's not necessarily prescribing uh, something that's particular or specific to this ancient culture, but he's simply appealing to the culture, speaking to the culture, and describing what imitators of God do family-like in their particular context. Are you tracking with me? The mistake one could make at this point is to simply or merely use this group of verses as a proof text for setting up a huge case for complementary family life. Complementarianism is, of course, this idea that the, uh, the husband or the pastor or the man is the authority and the woman is to submit and obey, okay? To, to put it in, in sort of crude terms. Uh, that would be one legitimate end of the spectrum, theologically speaking. The other end, of course, is what we would refer to as egalitarianism, where people would essentially disregard um, most of Ephesians 5 altogether and say, well, look, that's just, that's, we're not into that. That's, that's barbaric, that's sexist, and that's just we don't even want to go there. Um, I'm going to suggest we don't go to either extreme, but we really are thoughtful in considering the, the fact that Paul is speaking to a patriarchal society. He's not necessarily commanding them to be patriarchal, but he is appealing to a culture in which he's communicating to. I would also point out that in verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He goes on to also say, and children, submit to your parents. Or more specifically, he says, children, obey your parents. Then he goes on to talk about the relationship between slave and master, or bond servant and master. I think in our uh, modern context, we would think of that as like an employer and employee. Obey your master. Paul doesn't use the word obey here in the relationship between husband and wife. He simply says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to or unto the Lord. Meaning that this act of 
trusting or being vulnerable or submitting to God is primarily, first and foremost, something that is done as to the Lord, not another human being. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, the covering of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. If you're wondering what that means, um, you're not alone. In fact, there's there's a mountain of books and commentaries out there exploring what Paul really means by the washing of water with the word. And that would be another sermon for another time. Verse 27, so so that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Next slide. In the same way, husbands, now you see already Paul is like completely jumbling up his, his audience here, his metaphors. On one hand, he's clearly talking about a relationship between husband and wife. Okay, the primary or the, the, the central a piece of the family unit, but then he, he, he's kind of jumping back and forth. Is he talking about the husband and the wife, or is he talking about Jesus and the church? It's hard to, to know exactly who he's talking to at any given point in this passage, um, unless, of course, we keep reading. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves their wife loves his wife, loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I love that. All of that to say, what I'm really talking about is actually to do with this profound mystery in the relationship between Christ and his church. A mystery that is revealed in marriage. So let's ask some questions about marriage. First of all, Biblically, what are we talking about? Now, we all know that there's massive uh, debate. Uh, there's, of course, there's politics and legal issues to do with marriage. What is marriage? How do we define marriage? Who is it for? Um, you know, is it legal for same-sex people to marry? And all of this has been raging on for a couple decades, at least in our country. Um, now, biblically, I think it's important whether you say, look, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I believe in the Bible or not. Let's just be clear. As followers of Jesus, what are we talking about when we're talking about marriage? Well, we can go to the next slide. Uh, It's a mystery. It's profound. 
and it's something primarily to do with Christ and the church. Next slide, please. Marriage. It's an image, and it's a commissioning. It's a picture, a reflection, an image, if you will, of a greater reality. It's something that reflects the very nature of God himself. Now, we mustn't get it turned around. Okay, marriage isn't merely an illustration to explain something that's hard to understand about the nature of God. Now, in fact, it's the exact other way around. God is our reality. He and what he's like defines what it means to love, to be loved, to be in a loving relationship with others. Marriage is a reflection or an image of who God is and what he's like. When the two become one, it's, well, first and foremost, it's a picture of creation. If we go back to Genesis, which is where Paul was just quoting, this is the creation narrative. It's the account of how God made humans And he said, when he created them, he created them male and female. He brought them together, and they became one. And that Hebrew word one, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it's the same word that's used to describe the oneness of God himself. There's something diverse and unified about the oneness of God, our Trinitarian God. And it's something that's actually reflected in marriage. So it's an image of creation. It's also an image of redemption. And we'll get into this in just a minute, but Genesis 2, if we can go to the next slide, 2.24, it's underlined, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and refers to Christ and the church. This is a foreshadowing of King Jesus leaving home to cleave to his bride. It's an image of creation. It's an image of redemption. Prince Jesus leaves his heavenly home to seek and to save and to cleanse and to redeem his lost and broken bride, us. Marriage is also an image of redemption. It's an image, and it's commissioning. I was married um, to my wife, Shirley. Where are you, Shirley? There you are. She was the one that was sharing and praying for us earlier. Um, Just before I forget, Shirley was going to be serving in the kids' ministry downstairs, and she purposely traded shifts so that she could be in here this morning. So she wants to monitor everything I say about marriage. So feel free if I, if I just, if I say anything inappropriate, if I just step out of line or just start like blatantly lying about how incredible our marriage uh, is, which wouldn't be a lie. Um, you just, just cut me off at any point. Where was I? It's commissioning. When I married my wife, um, we had a, a Christian minister, a young, young guy who was Shirley's pastor in South Africa, Tindai. Uh, he officiated the, the wedding, and he led us through vows, 
vows that we made to each other before God and God's people. It was a commissioning. And I can remember his message so clearly that morning that we were to go and see our marriage primarily as an opportunity to put on display a picture for the world to see, to look on and say, okay, I, I, I think I'm beginning to understand the way you guys relate to each other. This, uh, this beautiful dynamic, the way Shirley trusts you and the way you love her and, and the way you're following Jesus together. This illustrates something about the profound and mysterious nature of God himself. It also says something about the redemptive nature of our God, that he seeks to save and to rescue, to cleanse. And this has been a big part of our journey as we've grown together. We were commissioned. So when we're talking about Christian marriage, we're talking about displaying an image, and being commissioned to do just that. That's what Christian marriage is in essence. Now, if you're a Christian, I just want to say, if, if you want to get married, that's what you're asking to sign up for. Plain and simple. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's probably the hardest thing you might ever attempt to do in your life. Um, and it's, it's worth it every day. So let's talk about how. Because no one goes into marriage or thinks about marriage or prays for a spouse thinking in the back of their minds, I hope if I finally ever do get married, I just have like the worst marriage ever. That would be, that would be hilarious. No one wants that. No one wants that. We, we don't want that for any aspect of our lives, and we especially don't want that for our relationships or our families or our marriages. So let's talk about how to. Let me add this disclaimer. Shirley and I are coming up on 10 years, and um, yeah, a whole decade. Um, our marriage is perfect, so I'm going to... <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I'm going to give you the master's advice. This is how it's done. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay, you, yeah, you're right. Okay, here, here's what we're going to do. Let, let, me, let me put it this way. Shirley and I, like, we love each other to death. We really, really do. But we're, we're quite open about like, just how difficult our marriage has been, especially like in the very early years. Here's how I knew what our marriage would be like. So the night we got married, we got married in the afternoon. That night, it was wonderful, beautiful wedding. We were in South Africa. It was outside. It was It was lovely. Um, didn't manage to, to get a, a bite to eat the whole day, naturally. It was just too exciting, and there's too many people. So by the time the reception was over, we got in our little taxi, or whatever it was, and we took a, about an hour drive to the Royal Grand Hotel. Is that what it was called? The Airport Grand Hotel. Okay, quote-unquote grand. <laughs> Third world grand. Um, and so, whatever, we were having fun. And we got in our, it was probably close to midnight. We were famished. So we thought we'd better order some, some room service. The only thing they had left was soup. Like, all right, whatever, we got some soup. 
I remember it was, it was not bad. It was decent soup, super salty. I remember I like my soup salty, and I thought it was very salty. Anyways, we ate our soup, had a lovely first night, uh, fell asleep, probably around 3, maybe 4 a.m., sometime in the middle of the night, it would seem we both woke up at almost the exact same time. All I remember is waking up thinking, oh my gosh, I need to go to the bathroom, like, now. <laughs> and clearly, Shirley had the exact same thought because she beat me to the bathroom. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm like hot, like hot flash, cold sweat, pacing in front of the bathroom door, thinking like, like it's our first night of marriage, so didn't feel comfortable pounding on the door, more of just like, God, please let her hurry, like, this is, this is bad, this is not how, we, this is how we started our marriage. Um, very down to earth, let me just put it that way. Some people, the, the honeymoon just sort of like carries on for a year, or maybe a couple years, and it's like you don't even like, you know, you don't do anything gross in front of your spouse. Somehow you manage to hide all of the, the farting and the burping and the everything else. Eventually you realize you've married a human being. Okay, we discovered that reality night one. Night one. And uh, just in case you're wondering, I, I did make into the bathroom and it was hilarious. She comes out, she's like, oh my God, I think there was something wrong with the soup. I know, get out of my way. Like, <laughs> and we had a laugh. So that's, that's, that's been our marriage. It's been, it's been wonderful, full of laughs, um, and we've just discovered all along the way how utterly human we both are. The cross and marriage. Now, I do want to give you guys some helpful advice. First, to people who are married, or perhaps in the process of getting married. Secondly, to the single people in the room who either are aspiring to get married or like, look, I'm very happy being single and celibate. But yeah, obviously, I want to I honor marriage. I want to help married people. And then thirdly, to people who um, have gone through or are going through divorce. Um, number one, cross and marriage. Number one, stop expecting your spouse to change and become an agent of change yourself. These might actually be worth jotting down. I drew a little sketch here. This is the tabernacle. Don't laugh at my drawing. <laughs> this is not a tennis court, all right? This is the tabernacle. This is the Holy of Holies. This is the veil. It's been torn, and here's us. Now, I don't want to get too theologically pedantic, okay? But this is important. This is an important principle. When the veil was torn... Did the world go rushing in, or did King Jesus come out? Yes. Yes. But primarily, Jesus came to us. Jesus invites us in to cross over from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But God is always the initiator. We love because he first loved he came to us to call us to himself. When the veil was torn, it wasn't that God was standing back waiting for us now to make a move. It was the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. 
This is, this is a meta-theological theme in Scripture from beginning to end. Jesus teaches us to pray that the kingdom of heaven would come on earth as it is in heaven. In our marriage, there will be conflict. Surprise. Surprise, surprise, surprise. There will be plenty of conflict, whether night one or a year later. You will discover you've married a human being with actual shortcomings. Some of them might actually be kind of nasty. You will be tempted to think to yourself, man, I, you know, my marriage would be good if somehow I could just figure out a way to get my spouse to change. Like, okay, yeah, I realize I have a few issues to work through. Like, I am humble. <laughs> but the real problem is my spouse. And if I could just get them to change. When we look to the cross and when we look to what happened when the veil was torn, we see that love always initiates. In fact, if you want to work on your marriage, give up working on your spouse. Look in the mirror and begin to ask God to work on yourself. This is how walls are torn down. If you want to think of the partition, the veil as a wall, okay, the reason why marriages break down or relationships in general break down is because we build walls. Things are said, mistakes are made, we are sinful, we're selfish, etc., etc. Those things that we do begin to build walls. We erect walls that separate us from each other. The same way we've built walls to separate ourselves from our creator, God. The way walls are torn down isn't by yelling over the wall like, hey, yo, jerk, why don't you tear down your side of the wall? Because what do they say? They yell back over, hey, yeah, why don't you sort yourself out? And we just kind of yell at each other from over the wall. The way walls are torn down are always from the inside out. We take responsibility for ourselves. Guys, this is marriage counseling 101. If you've ever read any book on marriage, this is, this is like chapter one. This is the basics of how to work on your marriage. Give up working on your spouse. Okay, let me tell you how to get your partner not to change. Constantly remind them of their shortcomings. Constantly bring up the things about them that annoy you the most. But when you do it, be very subtle and passive-aggressive about it. And as you do it, make sure you're discerning the very motive of their heart. Because that's just really helpful. I've mastered that skill. Being grossly sarcastic. It has the opposite effect. If you want to work in your marriage, be an imitator of Jesus. Work on yourself. Now I'll qualify work in a minute. But start tearing the wall down from your side. By the way, this is the fundamental difference between religion and grace. Grace, let's start with religion. Religion says God's over here and he says, look, I'm here. I've opened the door. Now let's see what you got. 
Let's see how far you can get. And he stands aloof and he waits to see if we can't perhaps ascend to his level. Grace is the exact opposite. Grace initiates. Grace takes the first step. Grace is God coming down and calling us up. Uh, This is also... I should probably just mention, this is uh, Matthew 7 and Luke 6. Jesus tells the parable of the, the speck and the log. He says, essentially, don't judge, because when you do, it's, it's like pointing out the speck in your brother or sister's eyes when you've got a massive plank sticking out of your own. Okay? It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, it's actually called, what's the word? A hypocrisy doesn't really do wonders for marriage or any relationship. So you begin with yourself. Okay, number two. Stop trying to fix the past and begin seeing God's vision for your future. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, the first year of, of marriage, Shirley and I, it was, it was such a, an intense year. We were getting to know each other, and like you talk about, I preached uh, on triggers a couple weeks ago, stress. I mean, we were just like, like double-barreled, just triggers, triggers, left and right. Like, I mean, I was pulling all of them. It was, it was wild. I remember that first year going for many long walks. This is when we were, we're still living in London, and I go walking around our neighborhood, and I started praying what I thought was this very noble-sounding prayer. It went something like this. Just, I'm just fuming. I'm just like, oh, like this is insane. Like, God, you've, oh, like. And then I started praying this prayer. God, help me to love Shirley the way you do. I'm like, yeah, God, just, just help me. Help me, to, help me to love your daughter your princess, the way you do. And I started praying this prayer all the time. One day, one night, I remember it, I was out walking and fuming and praying this prayer, and I heard God speak to me. Really, I did. Not audibly, but it was, it was a definite sense that, that God was speaking to me. And he said, okay, okay, you got it. But what you're really asking me is to teach you how to carry your cross. Because this is how I love. This is what love cost me. You want to love Shirley the way I love her? Okay. I'm going to teach you how to pick up your cross and to love sacrificially. Even if the things that like bug you about your beautiful, amazing wife, never, ever change. I'm going to teach you to love her all the same. I'm going to teach you to serve her and to lay down your life for her all the same. Because that's how I love my children. How did Jesus do that? He had a vision for the future. He wasn't looking at our long history of shortcomings and things to work on. Jesus was looking 
to the reality ahead. He was looking to the day that he would ultimately be joined to his bride, the bride that he purchased with his own blood, that he died for and was eager to cleanse and to to wash and to make pure, to present whole. It was for the joy set before him. Guys, in marriage, and it won't take long at all, maybe a month, maybe 10 years, you'll realize that there's this like nasty, tangled knot of drama that you're just gonna like kind of drag along with you the further and further you get into your marriage. Now, like, I don't mean to like sound depressing about marriage, okay? It's not all bad, but it's hard. It is hard. And what'll happen is things, things will take place and you'll, you'll have these arguments and you'll forget what you're even arguing about. It'll have something to do that happened five minutes ago. It'll have something to do with something that happened five years ago. And then, of course, it'll have something something to do that happened before you ever even met your spouse. And it's just this, like, knot of drama and insecurity and resentment. And there is no end to that. If you get stuck simply trying to untangle, constantly untangle the knot of your past, It's like being forever stuck and paying off debt. Debt. The problem with that is that in Christianity, to follow Jesus is to always begin with the end. When we're saved, this is is interesting. Unlike virtually all other quote-unquote religions, You make a commitment to follow a a teacher, a guru, to implement a particular way of living, and you begin a journey of sort of working your way up, and you get better, and you get better, you get better, until eventually you attain to the ultimate reality that you're hoping to achieve or that you're aspiring towards. In Christianity, it's the exact opposite. You make a commitment to follow Jesus, and he says, right, it is finished. You're adopted. You're in. As I am, so are you in this world. When the father looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of his son. And he says, no, 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 I, I get you. I'm not like in denial or unable to like actually deal with reality. But starting point, I view you as my son or daughter You're whole, you're forgiven, you are 100% accepted, you're adopted. Here's the certificate of adoption, you're in my family. And so we begin at the very end point, and then we start the journey. It's the same way in our marriages. We don't don't begin by by working on our our, our knot of past failures, and you have to work on your stuff. But we're constantly looking ahead. Christianity, it's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of hope. Not one of working out debt. One of walking out the reality that Jesus has already secured for us. Let me just put it this way. It's about getting a vision for your future reclaim God's vision for your marriage. If you want to work, don't waste your time constantly trying to untangle what went wrong in the past. 
oh my gosh, that's exhausting. Get a vision for the future and start running hard that way. One Corinthians thirteen, Paul's beautiful description of love. He says, "Love keeps no record of wrongs," um, or your translation might say, "Love is not resentful." Resentment will choke out a marriage. Learn to look forward. Learn to cultivate a vision for the future. Learn what it means to have a joy set before you. Number three. This is the last one. Realize that numbers one and two are impossible to perfect in this life. And learn the art of R&R. R&R is not rest and relaxation. It's repent and receive. Repent and receive. Let's go to the next slide. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 38. The apostle Peter is preaching and says, Therefore, know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and that is King and Christ, Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. Talking about the cross. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Guys, in order to do number one and number two, the art of repenting and receiving, the lifestyle of constantly turning away from your sin, turning away from making an idol out of your spouse, turning away from things that would erect the wall of resentment in your relationship, Asking God to forgive you and turning back to Jesus and receiving his spirit by which he pours his love into our hearts, by which he causes us to love the way he loves, by which he makes it possible for us to get a vision for the joy that is meant to be our marriage, by which he empowers us to initiate love, not to withdraw not to hold back, not to become critical, but to graciously love and love and love. Repent and receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, after spending a week uh, with a marriage counselor, that Shirley and I spent some time with. Um, I went for a week, she went for a week, and then we went together for a week. Um, we cried out to God for help in our marriage. And it's a long story, but God answered our prayer in a really, really cool way. And he paid for us to go see this marriage counselor. And so for five days, probably about 30, close to 40 hours, I spent with this, this, uh, this counselor, this professional marriage counselor who happened to be an amazing follower of Jesus as well. 40 hours, we talked about my junk, and I cried, and all this drama came out, and I realized that my wife actually wasn't the problem in my marriage. In fact, my problems started like long before I ever even met Shirley. 
And so we dealt with all this stuff. We talked about all this stuff. And the very last day, last session of the last day at the end of the week, I said, what do I do next? Like, I've got, I've got a, a notebook this thick full of things to work on and, and revelations that, that I've had. Where do I begin? And he looked me right in the eye and he said, I want you to go home. Promise me this. You promise me this. Here's what I want you to do. You go home and you do nothing. Don't you dare start working on all of this stuff. So you go home and you get with Jesus. You sit quietly and ask him what he wants to do next. He may want to talk to you. He may want to simply encourage you. He may want to bring healing to your heart. Maybe he'll have some things, probably will have some things for you to do. But the answer isn't for you to just get to work. It's for you to turn once again to Jesus and allow him to heal you, to fill your heart with the love that you need to have the marriage you and your wife are both, both desperately long for. Single people and people who have gone through or are perhaps thinking about going through a divorce. Let me say this. If you're single, number one, embrace your singleness. It's a total gift. I know that's like the most cliche thing to say. I get it. Um, I, was, I got married when I was 32. I became a Christian when I was 24. Eight-year dry spell. Brutal. It wasn't fun. In retrospect, my advice, embrace it. Embrace your singlehood. It's a gift. God's timing is impeccable. Embrace it, as hard as it is. Take principles one, two, and three and begin to practice them. Practice on your friends, practice on your family, practice on your church, practice on your roommates, practice on the people you really struggle to get along with. Practice. And especially, I would say, focus on number two. Uh, get a vision for what you're hoping your marriage will look like. Study God's word. Um, I would look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Guys, if you're not married and you're living together and or sleeping together, I would say, obviously the scriptures would call that sin. That's, that's no, nothing controversial about that. But I would say that the problem with that isn't that some sort of like scriptural technicality. It's that you have, you've settled for something so much less than God's vision for your marriage. Get a vision for what your marriage could be like. Get a vision for how your marriage could actually be like a picture of what God is like, his covenant faithfulness, and how he views your body and your sexuality and how these gifts that he's given us are meant to reflect something so much bigger than just you and your personal needs. If you need to talk, with someone's like, gosh, I am living with my boyfriend or girlfriend, and we are sleeping together, and what you're saying is actually really ticking me off right now. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Like, no one's going to kick you out of church. No one wants to condemn you. We all want to follow Jesus together. 
We want to grow together. We want to listen to each other. We want to look to God's word, and we want to learn how to obey Jesus together. So don't just leave and disappear. Let's chat. I promise you, I'm very, very gentle. I really am. Let me close with this. If you've been divorced, or if, if your parents have been divorced, I want to say this most of all. As a community, we are here for you. From what I understand, divorce is one of the most humanly traumatic things a person can ever go through in life. It's just, it's, it's, I've heard it put on par with like, like the death of a loved one. It's, it's that sort of trauma, and it, it can cause that sort of pain. Um, and I just want to say, if you're going through that, even if the divorce was many, many years ago, or if it was your parents and you're a child, and you, like, we're here for you. As a community, we want to be a safe place where you can talk about things that you're feeling, pains that you're processing through, get healing, be prayed for, and, uh, and find restoration for your life, for your family. Secondly, if, if you're contemplating divorce, if your marriage is basically over, maybe legally you're, you're still married, but you're like going through the process, perhaps you're separated, you're going through the divorce, we're here for you. We want to help you. Obviously, no one wants divorce. No one wants that. It hurts everyone. And the idea of having a divorce party to be honest with you, it makes me want to vomit. It's the dumbest thing ever. Divorce hurts everyone. As a Christian, I am under no illusion that somehow Christians are like magically immune to the, the brokenness that we experience in our marriages. I have plenty of Christian friends who have gone through divorce, and it just puts the fear of God in me. I end up praying things like, God, just help me. Please help me. I want to be, I want to be happily married 50 years from now. After that, we'll, we'll see what happens. I'll probably be dead. <laughs> Guys, just to say, no, absolutely, divorce is not, it's not God's plan. G- Jesus says only under the most extreme situation is, is divorce permissible but no one wants it so if you're going through it if your marriage is on the rocks guys we're here for you we're not going to condemn you we're not going to like throw the bible in your face and say you know repent or get out we're going to walk with you we're going to support you hopefully we're going to be a safe place for you to process through some really really hard stuff and uh, we're going to we're going to believe with you that god can bring uh, something beautiful out of some real severe pain. So that's marriage. The cross and marriage.